Well, I don't know if you've been going to the cinema a lot, but the origin story has become a familiar standard, right? Whether it is James Bond or Spider-Man or Batman or Batman again, lots of popular franchises have been redone where they trace the central origin story of the main character. This is quite understandable, right? Because if we understand where a character has come from, well, then we're able to make sense of his life a little bit more. So, for example, when we know that as a child, Bruce Wayne's parents were killed, then we're able to make understanding of his adult reaction to dress up in a rubber jumpsuit and beat people up. Okay? It makes perfect sense. Now, the point is the same for our story. In order to properly understand ourselves and our world, we need to know our origin story. The question, why are we here, is intimately connected with the question, where did we come from? And that is why contemporary attempts to explain our origin can never be divorced from general questions about purpose and meaning. So, for example... If we believed in evolutionism or philosophical evolutionism in which our origin is governed by the purposeless direction of chance, then the meaning of our existence will also be ultimately purposeless. However, the Bible presents us with a radically different origin story and hence a radically different meaning for our existence. Now let us begin with the first verse of the Bible. Everyone look down at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We there? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very first verse, the Bible insists that we need to make a fundamental distinction in all of our thinking. And it is a distinction that is at the heart of all truly reformed theology, the creator-creature distinction. Now let me explain. The book of Genesis is literally the book of beginnings. Okay, So the book can actually be segmented by the repeated refrain, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Terah. And these are the generations of Jacob. And so on, and so on, and so on. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, from verse 4, we even read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Everything in Genesis has an origin story. Everything except God. In the very first verse of the Bible, God just is. He has no origin or backstory. God has always been. This is described by theologians as God's aseity, from the Latin verb to be. God is in no sense correlative to, that means equal to, or dependent upon anything besides his own being. He is sufficient to himself as the self-contained, absolute, autonomous, triune God. 
That's the first word of the Bible. Now, God's being is different from creation, which has another sort of being, being that is produced and sustained by God. Therefore, the universe is not an independent entity, but is dependent upon God. Now, that may seem like an obvious point. God is God and is distinct from everything else that is not God. Duh. Yet it is a failure to pay proper attention to this point that is at the heart of many failures in our thinking. Now, at the start, I said that the question of origin is intimately connected with the question of meaning. Now, therefore, if we recognize that the existence of the entire universe is neither autonomous nor correlative to God, but is dependent upon God, then its purpose and meaning is also dependent upon God. The theologian Cornelius Van Til puts it this way. As the absolute and independent existence of God determines the derivative existence of the universe, so the absolute meaning that God has for himself implies that the meaning of every fact in the universe must be related to God. Let's read the last part again. The meaning of every fact in the universe must be related to God. There is no such thing as a brute or empty fact, a meaningless fact. It doesn't exist. Every fact is there because God wills it. And God gives that fact meaning. Now, put simply, what Van Til is saying is that everything that was created by God is not only dependent upon God for its existence, but it's also dependent upon God for its meaning. And that meaning is predetermined by his purpose, and it serves his glory. So, in summary... The first verse of the Bible insists upon a distinction between the creator God and his creation. God is the ultimate reference point for all created being. And hence all meaning is not to be located in ourselves or anywhere else in this world, but in the self-contained triune God. Now, before I sweep through the rest of the passage, I want to firmly establish this point with respect to our own human existence. And to do that, I want you to pay very careful attention to verses 26 and 27. In fact, let us read them together. Just read the verse that's on the screen. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in these verses, we often concentrate upon man being made in the image of God. We concentrate on that, that we miss an equally fundamental truth. Uh, We exalt ourselves before we are humbled. Now, notice that there is a threefold repetition in this Hebrew poetry. In each line, we are told that God created man, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. We, you, are first and foremost God's creatures. You are made by God. In fact, if you notice in the creation week, uh, we appear along with the cattle. We don't even get a special day to ourselves. Okay, we're made on the same day as the livestock. And that should be humbling. And like creation, we are not like God. We are not autonomous. We are not co-relative to God. But we are derivative and we are dependent upon God. Therefore, the meaning of our individual existence is not self-defined. You don't define yourself. But you are defined by the God who made you. Each one of us has derived our existence from God And hence, the purpose of our lives is defined by him. So, origin, God created you. Therefore, meaning, next slide, God defines your purpose. Okay? By the way, when I say that God has a purpose for you, I don't mean that in the sense that many other preachers do. We'll come to that in a second. Now, once we have properly understood our creatureliness, then we can examine the second repetition in the parallelism. Okay, so what did we have? What's the next repetition? Well, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it tell us? In his image, in his image, male and female. Interesting. This gives us a clue to our nature as God's image bearers. It is connected to our status as male-female community. Now, in the light of the New Testament, we know that God has disclosed himself more fully as a community of three distinct persons in an eternal loving unity. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is absolutely relational And he is relationally absolute. And as his image bearers, the unity and diversity that is seen in the male-female relationship is a reflection of the unity and diversity within the Godhead. And that's why we cannot uh, stand with people who advocate same-sex marriage. Because God is not three fathers and he's not three sons. In the same way, we are not created as two men or two women, but male and female. Finally, the passage makes one further point about our status as image bearers. That is, we were made to exercise rule and dominion. Just as God is the ruler of creation, we who are made in his image were made to rule creation under him. Now this is significant, and we'll return to it later because it's picked up in the rest of the Bible. But I'm going to pass it over just for the time being. Now, I'm going to cover the rest of Genesis 1, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up the main features because what you'll see is if you examine Genesis 1, it's got a rhythmic, poetic structure. There are several repeated words and phrases that segment this text, and I'm going to pick just three. Okay? First, God created everything by his word. Do you see that if you look at the chapter? And God said, let there be light. Verse 3. 
And God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 5 and verse 9, is it? And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. God's word is the sole agent of God's action. It carries his authority. It unfailingly accomplishes that for which God intended it. In short, God's word is powerful, it is effective, and it is intimately related to God himself. Now, just as a side point, that is why we at SMAC preach God's word. And that's all we do every single week. We read it and we explain it to God's people because God's word is where the power is. And it's God's word that truly lets us know who God is. And so if you're in a CF, then can I encourage you to place right at the forefront of what you do the reading and the teaching of God's word. Don't get distracted by other things. God's word is powerful and effective. Second, in the beginning, God created everything good. Now, this has a couple of implications. Uh, The most obvious is that evil is an alien intrusion into God's world. Everything that God made was originally made good. We're going to look at evil tomorrow. It also means that God's word accomplishes that for which he intended it. God wanted to do something, he declares his intention, and that thing happens. When I go to a Mamak store, very occasionally, the one across the road from church, I say, I would like Roti Milo. And what comes back to me is Nasi Goreng. My word doesn't really conform to what actually happens. But God's word does. When God says, let there be light, light appears. And so God says that it's good because it conforms to what he desired. But perhaps more importantly, this means that goodness is defined by God's word. Goodness is defined by God's word. It's not something external to God, to which God has to conform. No, goodness comes from God's very being. And this means, this is really important, it is God and God alone who establishes ethics. And he does so through his word. God establishes what is right and wrong. This means when culture is saying that what God says is good is evil, or what God says is evil, we say to be good, well, God's word is the one that wins. Because he determines what is good. And thirdly, every creative day is concluded with the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, the nth day. Now, every day, aside from the final day, look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Just carefully look at those. Now, this is a special day. This is a day without end. There's no evening for this day. It is a day God blessed and made holy because on it God rested from all of his creative labors. This Sabbath rest is the very goal. It is the purpose of his creative effort to enjoy his perfect good creation in fellowship with mankind, 
in the eternal Sabbath rest. The Sabbath is the end goal of God's creative action. So, in summary, the agent or means of God's creation is his word. The pattern of his creation conforms to his standard of goodness. And God's goal and purpose for creation is the eternal Sabbath rest. You all happy with that so far? Yes. Oh, dear. Is it a long day? Is my voice boring and tedious and monotonous? I'll try to liven it up. I can, I can moderate my voice a tiny bit. Not much. It's okay. It's okay. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> okay. Yes. This is a sermon. Usually we don't take questions at this point. <laughs> go ahead. Go, go, no, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. <laughs> right. Shall, shall I? Okay, I will repeat it. The agent or means of God's creation is God's word. The pattern of creation conforms to a standard of goodness that is defined by God alone. And God's goal and purpose for creation is the eternal Sabbath rest. Please don't try that at KVBC. You'll get into a lot of trouble. It's okay, don't worry. I'm not offended, Jingwei, don't worry. Okay. Right. That's the first half, understanding the passage on its own terms. So now we've got to see how it fits together within the grand framework of all scripture. And so, let us have a quick look at Luke 24, which we should be fairly familiar with. Okay? In Luke 24, don't look at it, just, you can look at it on the screen. Jesus says to uh, uh, his people on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now what that means is that all of the Bible finds its meaning in Jesus. Okay, there's not one verse that doesn't ultimately find its meaning in Jesus. And so that's ultimately what we're going to do now. Creation, Genesis 1, finds its meaning only when we look at Jesus. So, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, each gospel writer carefully places Jesus within an Old Testament framework, right? Uh, Tracing it back to Abraham and David and so on. But John, by echoing the opening verses of Genesis in the beginning, frames his gospel right back at the start of all history. Okay? Just as Genesis tells us that God made the world by his word, John tells us that the word of God, the eternal word, was with God in the beginning. This word is distinct from God and yet is himself very and truly God. Furthermore, it is through the word that all things were made and without the word, nothing was made that has been made. But then John marks a major turning point in history as we come to verse 14 because this word who was with God and is himself God and is the agent of his creation, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, the word of God, the agent of creation, 
broke into the creation he made and became man. Furthermore, John tells us concerning this word made flesh that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That is, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, relates to God as the only son of the father and he is full of grace and truth. Now, in case we're in any confusion, John uses the words full of grace and truth once again about a sentence later. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. That is, the word is Jesus. Jesus is the agent of the Father's creation. So according to John, Jesus is the eternal son of the Father, the agent of his creation as the word of the Father, and that he, being God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Okay, let's do another flyby. Hebrews. Do you want to flick to Hebrews chapter 1? Okay. You don't know where Hebrews is. Hebrews is a New Testament book. Okay, a lot of people get that confused because, you know, Hebrews sounds like an Old Testament kind of thing. And it's after Paul's letters. Okay, so you know you've got Paul's letters like Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians, blah, 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 blah. It's just after that. If you're not sure, get a friend. Okay, I'll read it out. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, through whom, uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He tells us that God, who once spoke through the prophets, has definitively spoken to us through his Son, through whom he also created the world. Not only that, but Jesus continues to sustain the universe by the word of his power. Jesus as the perfect word of the Father, is the agent of his creation and the full and complete expression of God and is himself presently sustaining the universe. The risen and exalted Christ is the reason why you are still drawing breath now. He sustains you. Colossians 1. Paul makes a similar point, but he goes a bit further. Talking about Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, first point. Jesus is the perfect expression of his father as the image of the invisible God. God did not start image-bearing in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam. But he has been eternally imaging 
the person of his son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the original image, what we might call the archetype, of which Adam's image and our image is derivative. Furthermore, Jesus is the agent of God's creative purpose. We've seen that before, but Paul says more than this. Christ is not only the goal, uh, not in the means of creation, but he is also the goal. All things were created by him and for him. This is a very, very, very significant point. I've already stated that creation has a clear meaning and purpose, and that this meaning can only be found with reference to the self-contained triune God who wills everything for his glory. In Genesis 1, the meaning was found in the seventh-day Sabbath rest, on which God delighted in his perfect creation. However, in the New Testament, this purpose finds its ultimate fulfillment, uh, its ultimate meaning and purpose, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is able to declare, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about having a nap. He was talking about that true rest, the Sabbath rest, the very goal of creation. Now that is, if anyone wants to know the supreme purpose of the entire universe and your own purpose, you can only find that purpose in Jesus. Don't look elsewhere. Not in money, not in career, not in girlfriend, not in studies. Your purpose is intimately bound up with the person of Christ. So, here's a rapid summary of what the New Testament says about creation. God, the little black line is like history, okay? God created all things through Christ. God sustains and governs all things through Christ. And God directs all things for Christ. He is the goal. Make sense? Okay. Now, everyone turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I want to close here because I think there's no clearer statement of the cosmic purpose of God that is revealed in Christ in the entire New Testament. So, carefully read the first 14 verses, or rather starting from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, was sealed by his Thomas Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. God creates all things with a purpose. He does everything with a purpose. And the word purpose, prothesis, is repeated three times in these first 14 verses. As Paul makes clear that God sovereignly directs all of history, the entire universe, according to his purpose. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Therefore, let us consider the things that Paul highlights that God accomplishes according to his purpose. Okay? God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. God predestined us for adoption through Christ. God redeemed us in Christ by his blood and has forgiven us. God has given us an inheritance in Christ. And God has sealed us in Christ with his Holy Spirit. Now this conforms exactly to what we have seen so far. Firstly, notice how Christocentric God's actions are. Just as God accomplished all of his creative purposes in and through Jesus, in the same way, God accomplishes all of his redemptive purposes in and through Jesus. Okay, God created everything through Jesus. All of God's redemptive purposes are through Jesus. Secondly, notice that Jesus isn't simply the means of God's actions, but he's the very goal of God's actions as well. Okay, uh, I, I can't remember the verse. You, you'll be able to find it. I think it's verse 9, actually. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This means that God is directing the entire created order towards a final consummation in which everything is united in Christ. And finally, all of God's purpose for creation, which he works through Christ and directs towards Christ, serves ultimately to magnify the glory of God that is demonstrated in the gospel of Christ. God works things towards Christ, he does it through Christ, and he does it to magnify his glory in the gospel of Christ. This is so important. This is foundational. We know that creation finds its meaning in God and that it exists to serve his glory. But according to Paul, the way in which God ultimately pursues the praise of his glory in this created order is in the demonstration of his gracious love for sinners like us that he has accomplished in Christ. That is how God magnifies his glory. 
That is how God directs the universe. This means that the purpose of creation, according to Paul, is ultimately to to expand and, and demonstrate powerfully the gracious character of the triune God that was climactically demonstrated for us in history at the cross of Christ. That's the turning point of all history. God has made every quark and governed them all and every galaxy and he has directed them in his gracious love for the church which was manifested in Christ and which will be to the praise of his glory. That's what Genesis 1 is about. I'm going to close. I want you to close your eyes. It's not some kind of trick. I just want you to close your eyes and imagine what Genesis 1 is doing. And imagine what it is in the light of the New Testament. When you roll back those seven days in Genesis, before the animals wandered on the face of the earth, imagine before the seams, uh, the seas teemed with fish. Imagine before trees and bushes ever sprung forth. Imagine before the earth even cooled from its molten state before our sun came into existence. Imagine before the powerful explosion of matter that was the birth of our universe and the pouring forth of God's light into the dark void. Before all of these things, according to Paul, before the foundation of the world, God loved you. He chose you in Christ before all of those things, not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything that you deserve, but as recipients of his gracious love and as partakers of his blessing in Christ, that you might be to the eternal praise of his glory. You can look up. This is the meaning of Genesis 1. Chosen in Christ, created in Christ, redeemed in Christ, and for Christ. You did not create yourself. This is why you exist instead of not existing. This is why anything exists instead of nothing existing. This was God's original purpose in creation. For the glory of Christ. Let's pray.